John 5. And we're in a series, just while you look that up, we're in a series looking at miracles. And, and what, what I think is great about looking at miracles is it forces us to do two things, two really important things, I think. So the first thing it forces us to do is to work out what we, who we actually think the person of Jesus was. Like a miracle forces you to answer the question, who is this person? Like, like who is he and what's going on? Because you can't just ignore it. You've got to, you've got to have some theory. So you, you've got to think, well, maybe he was a fraudster. Like maybe he was just like a, a con man, the equivalent of like a psychic or something. Um, uh, nowadays, you know, he's got all the tricks and he can, he can make it look good, but he's just a fraudster. Or you think maybe he's just a figure of myth and legend. Maybe there was no such person as the person of Jesus. Or if there was, he wasn't like this. And maybe that's how you understand the miracles. Maybe you just see him as a, as a man who could do remarkable things. You think that every now and again, men appear who can do things that aren't ordinary, and you just put him in that category. Or, or are you willing to consider that he was the person he claimed to be? He was God, come down to earth to reveal himself to us. You see, when you see a miracle, you're forced to come up with at least some explanation for it. Like, I'm, not, I'm not saying that the explanation Jesus gives is the only one, but it forces you to do something with it. You've got, to, you've got to at least engage with it and go, okay, who do I really believe this person was? So that's, that's the first thing that's great about looking at miracles. The second thing that I'm hoping it will do for us as a church is it will not only bring us face to face with Jesus and force us to answer difficult questions about who he was, but what I want it to do is bring us face to face with miracles and force us to actually wrestle with what do I personally believe about miracles? Because it's very easy to be just a bit kind of, I don't know, nonchalant about it and just be like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, and just kind of leave it at that. But I I think when you're faced with the miracles of the Bible, it it forces you to ask the question, do I actually believe that miracles are possible? Do I believe that these things called miracles ever happened? Do I believe they still happen? Do I believe they could happen in my life? Now, these these are important questions, Because if there are no miracles, if miracles don't exist, then the only solutions you can hope for in your life are natural solutions. That's it. The world is as it is, and if we're going to find a way to make it better than this, all the solutions are going to have to come from natural kind of sources. We're going to have to work it out ourselves. But if you do believe in miracles, then you have another option. You believe that that what's going on in the world can, can have solutions that aren't purely natural, that come from outside of the world as we observe it and we see it around us. So I'm hoping that this series will force us to not simply just carry on believing what we've always believed about miracles. My guess is that there'll be some of us who say, well, of course miracles aren't real because they're impossible. And there'll be some of us who say, well, of course miracles must, must happen because we believe in Jesus. And like, that's where we are. What I'm hoping is this series will stop us just keeping just believing those things because that's what we've always believed. But to really wrestle with how does the Bible present miracles? What does the Bible say about miracles? What does the Bible lead us to expect about miracles in our lives? And so far in the last two weeks we've been looking at this, what we've been trying to pull out for you are two really important things about miracles. The first is that miracles are primarily signs so they point to something beyond themselves. So that, that's the first thing what you need to understand about miracles. As the Bible presents miracles, they're not just random acts of kind of, I don't know, of the fantastic. They're not just random acts of kindness. They are signs pointing at something. 
And the thing they're specifically pointing to are Jesus' words. So that's what Paul was talking to us about last week. That the signs are primarily to, to help us relate to the words of Jesus, to trust in his words. And this week we're going to look at a different story. It's a story actually that comes straight after the story we were looking at last week. Um, and I think this story is going to force us not just to think about the miracles Jesus performed, but actually about miracles in general. It's going to help us. We're going to, we're going to have to decide and start thinking about what do we think about miracles outside of what Jesus did. So let's, let's read it. John 5, starting at verse 1, I'm going to read down to verse 15. So let me read this to you. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. I'm tr while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, that's the story. I'm going to do something really simple today. Um, I want to, I'm going to talk about the four, four kind of elements of this story. So I'm going to talk about the pool. I'm going to talk about the Jewish leaders. I'm going to talk about the invalids. I'm going to talk about Jesus. Okay, so if you're wondering where we're going, that's where we're going. I want to talk a bit about the pool, a bit about the Jewish leaders, a bit about the invalid, a bit about Jesus. So let's get into it. The pool. What on earth do we make of this pool at Bethesda? What do we make of a place where the water moves and sick people go there in the hope of being healed. Like, I don't know, what does your mind do when you come face to face with that as an idea? Is it, do you, do you immediately think, this is just superstitious nonsense? Or do you think, oh, maybe there's something in it? I don't know, like, what, what, how do you react to that idea? Was this a real place of healing? Or just a toxic combination of wishful thinking and spirituality? Like, like what, what actually do you think is going on at this pool? Because there's clearly enough people who are bought into this that every day people are going there and every day people are going down, being lowered into this water, trying to get there first, because that seems to be an important part of it. So, so what, what do we think? Like a genuine place where you could go for miracles or not? I don't know, you could ask the same question about a hundred different places across our world. You could ask the same question about a number of different places in Hartlepool. I don't, I don't know that we've got a local pool people go to for healing. Um, maybe we do, and I missed it. But you could ask the same question about the local spiritualists who offer to harness the energy of crystals for your healing. Like, you don't have to search very far to find a, a number of people around Harleypool who will offer this service. 
You could ask the same question about the local church, which claims to be God's designated place of healing. Or outside of Hartlepool, I guess the, most, the closest parallel to this would be somewhere like Lourdes, which claims to have had 69 miraculous healings during its history. Like, like what, what do you make of that? Like, do you, do you, how do you understand what's going on there? If, if you, we believe in miracles, do we believe in those things? Do we believe in healing crystals and churches that have specific healing ministries and lords? Do we, is that what we believe in? And, and if we don't believe in those things, then what do we think is going on there? Is this just, are these just places full of charlatans? Is, it just, is this just an entire group of con men? I don't know. You, this is what I want us to wrestle with. Like, what do we actually make of all of the claims for miracles that happened in Jesus' time at the pool of Bethesda and have happened throughout history and continue to happen today? How do we understand those? And I want to start just with some simple observations of what we see in this story. So, so not, none of this is going to be rocket science. I just want to just point out a few things we see in the story. The first thing is, this man was clearly putting his hope in the wrong place. Because he'd been an invalid for 38 years. And for some of, at least some of that time, he's been going down to the pool. At least enough times to be able to say that every time he tries to get put in the water, someone else gets there first. So, so we know that the pool doesn't seem to have been effective, at least for this man. And we also know that as far as we can tell, Jesus has no interest in the pool. Jesus doesn't engage with the pool in any way. He doesn't suggest... He doesn't, when the man says, oh, you know, I would like to be healed, he doesn't say, oh, well, don't worry, I'll carry you down to the water, like next time it starts bubbling up. Like that, Jesus seems to have no interest in the pool. The pool is an irrelevance to Jesus in this story. In fact, the key to this man's healing in this story seems to, just from a, just from a basic reading of the text, seems to involve two things. The man's desire to be healed. So Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? That seems to be one factor that seems to be important. And the second is the willingness and power of Jesus to heal him. They, they seem to be the only factors that have any bearing on whether this man is healed or not. The, the pool is uh, irrelevant. Whether the water is moving or not seems to be irrelevant. Um, a few, I don't know when it was, maybe a month ago or, or something like that, um, a few of us did a murder mystery. Um, just in case you're wanting to know what it looks like, Matt is going to share a picture from this um, up on the screen, um, so you can all just see it in all its glory. Um, I say this, you know, it just it, we'll get there. So when it goes up, you'll get to see it. But for those of you who've never done a murder mystery, so this was the murder mystery that we did. So there were a group of twelve of us uh, around our house, and we did we did a murder mystery. If you've never been to a murder mystery, this is the way they work. You all get given a character, um, you are the character, and one of you is guilty of the murder. Uh, and the other, the other 11 people of us in this group, um, so we are all red herrings. We could have done it. It could have been us. We had motive. We had opportunity. But actually, we didn't. There's only one of us that did it. Now, just from a cursory glance at that picture, who, anyone want to hazard a guess who wasn't there on who, who was the murderer? Who looks the murderous type there? Did you say me? <laughs> Right, and you said Ian. Um, Ian. Ian looks a little maniacal, but let's be honest, the clear murderer from that picture is Matt. Um, uh, and it was Matt. I mean, if I was picking a murderer from that picture, I mean, have you ever seen anyone look more like a Bond villain than Matt does at that point? Uh, uh, he, he was the murderer in the story. So, so 
The whole point of the story was to, to be able to identify that Matt was the person who, who did the crime, who did it. And all the rest of it was distractions. You know, there were, there were people who'd done stuff. It was just there to, to distract you away from focusing on Matt and on the fact that he, he was the person who'd done this crime. That's how, that's how murder mysteries work. That's how every Ag- Agatha Christie book works. It's, it's the kind of the basis. You've got, you've got the thing that you're meant to see, but there's all these other things that are just there to distract you away from that thing, to prevent you from seeing the actual important thing that's right in front of you. I think that, I think we should hear that as a warning when it comes to these kind of things, this pool, those kind of places of healing, and the person of Jesus. There will always be people and places and events which claim to offer healing. Many of them will be fictitious. Nothing more than places where people are preyed upon by con men who are looking to increase their influence or status, or in some case, their bank balances. Some of them may be full of well-meaning, but ultimately powerless people who offer little more than false hope and wishful thinking. It is is possible that some of these places that claim this may have experienced some miracles or some unexplained phenomenon at some point in the past, or even on occasions in the present. It's it's, it's even possible that there are some genuine miracles that have gone on there in the past or that will go on there uh, at the present. That is surely a possibility. But the danger of these things is that they distract us from Jesus. They act like the red herrings in a murder mystery. They act like the other 11 people around that table, all trying to distract us away from where we should be looking. We run after those things. You know, we make appointments with spiritualists. We take pilgrimages to holy places. We go to faith healing services. Instead of doing the thing we're meant to do, which is focusing on the person of Jesus, who is right in front of us. The ulti- and ultimately, the only place where lasting, meaningful miracles can be found. See, that was the danger for this man. Jesus was stood right in front of him, saying, do you want to be made well? And he's still thinking about the pool. He's missing what's right in front of him. And that's the risk for us, that we get distracted by all these claims, by all these offers, by all these spirituality that's around us. And we miss the fact that Jesus stood right in front of us. And he is the one who offers the key to lasting, meaningful miracles in our life. Here's here's the most basic point. I said I wanted to talk about the pool. Here's what I want you to understand about the pool. It is possible to believe in miracles without without believing in the healing power of the pool of Bethesda. We don't need to put all those things together. So often, people will look at Christians and go, well, you believe in miracles, so therefore you believe in healing pools and crystals and all this nonsense. We don't have to do that. We believe in miracles because we believe in the person of Jesus, and we believe that he was God come down to walk among us. We believe in that. That's not the same as us believing in every miracle that has ever been claimed by anyone. In fact, more than that, there is no encouragement in the Bible for us to hunt out special places where miracles occur or specific healing ministries. It's just not a thing. Rather, we're to avoid being distracted by hunting for miracles, by hunting for the spectacular, and instead keep our eyes firmly fixed on the person of Jesus. 
So that's the pool. I've got four things I want to talk about. The pool. How do we understand the pool? I think fundamentally here it's a red herring. It's a distraction which runs the risk of meaning we miss what we're meant to be looking at. But there is another group of people who also seem to miss who Jesus is here. And that is the Jewish leaders. So there's a risk that the invalid doesn't see Jesus for who he is. But even after the healing, the Jewish leaders fail to see Jesus for who he is. Notice what happens here. It's, just, it's kind of amazing. Because okay? Jesus does this phenomenal miracle. This guy who presumably hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. So, so he, he can suddenly, in the blink of an eye, stand up and walk again. I mean, it, it, it's, it's remarkable. And yet, the Jewish leaders seem entirely uninterested in the miracle. What they are concerned about is, well, how does this miracle fit in with, with my theology? How, do I, how, could, how can I make this miracle make sense, given what I believe about who God is and how he works? Their attention is fully consumed with the fact that this event took place on the Sabbath, and, there was, and that was unlawful. I mean, just how ridiculous is that scene? I, I almost feel like laughing when I read it. When you read it, they, they, so they, this man can suddenly walk again. And what is it these Jewish leaders say? They say, like, uh, excuse me, <laughs> but technically it's unlawful to, walk, uh, to carry your mat on a Sunday. I mean, what sort of response is that? I mean, talk about, like, jobs worth. It's, like, it's ridiculous. It's like, really? That's what you care about at this moment where I have been unable to walk for 38 years and the thing you care about is the fact that I'm carrying my mat? Like, it's, it's absolutely laughable. It's the most ridiculous reaction. They should be celebrating with this man and instead they're intent on raining on his parade. They should be discussing, what does this miracle mean about who this person, Jesus, stood right in front of us is? Instead, they're discussing, how do we apply the Old Testament law of the Sabbath to this situation? It's like madness. Talk about missing the point. But it does strike me that we are, I guess, as, as uh, people, we are in danger of doing the same thing or at least a similar thing with miracles. We look at them and we say, I'm sorry, that, that miracle just doesn't quite fit in with my worldview. It doesn't really work with the way I understand how the world works. It doesn't fit into my theology. So we reject it. We either decide, well, miracles can't really happen because that's not how I understand the world to be and ignore what we see in front of us. Or we just ignore it. We just go, I'm not, I'm not willing to think about that. I'm not willing to engage with it. We need to be careful that we don't allow our particular worldview, our particular theology, to cause us to miss what Jesus is doing right in front of our eyes. Maybe, sat here today, you, it, it, you just don't think miracles happen today. That's, that, that's your theology, that's your worldview, that's how you understand the world. You, maybe you think miracles have never happened I just don't believe they can, because I don't think that's how the world works. Or maybe you think, you, you think miracles were limited to the time of Jesus and the apostles. Like After that, we just don't really have miracles anymore. They don't happen anymore. Now, I want to be, be clear about this. By all means, hold that view. Like If, if you want to hold that position, if that is your, your view on it, you think miracles happened when Jesus and the apostles were alive, they don't really happen today, you can hold that view. I, I have no problem with you holding that view. But don't hold that view so tightly 
that you miss what Jesus is doing right now in the world that he created and he sustains. I'd be nervous about being too prescriptive about what God may or may not do, given how when you read through the Bible, he often seems to do quite unexpected things. I'd be nervous about saying, oh, God wouldn't do that thing. Oh, God wouldn't do miracles today. Uh, if, if that is kind of how you understand it, that's fine, but don't shut down the possibility. Because if there's one thing we know from reading the Bible, it's that God doesn't do things necessarily the way that we would, the way that we think we, he would. Or, or maybe it's not that. Maybe you refuse to believe many of the accounts of miracles because they just seem too bizarre to you. You know, you, you think, okay, I'm okay with the idea that God might do miracles, but if he was, he wouldn't do them like that. You know, he wouldn't do them through, through people. He'd just do it. Why would he bother using, like, some random bloke over in America? Like, that, that's not how he'd do it. He wouldn't do it accompanied by odd behaviors and spectacles. Like, that's not how God would do it. He'd just get on and do his miracles if he wants to. You just can't believe that God would work in such odd ways. Again, if that's how you understand the world, fine. Like, if you, that's kind of, as you see the world, if that seems to make sense to you, great. But I just want you to remember, Jesus' healings were not always the same, and sometimes were, were accompanied by quite bizarre things. You know, yet you have a healing where Jesus, for some reason, decides to create mud and put it on someone's eyes. Like, why? Well, we'd have to look at that miracle to unpack that, but it's not, it's not how he normally does it. There's, there's a miracle where he makes someone see, but it doesn't really work first time, he has to do it again. There's a miracle where people get, someone gets healed just by touching his clothes. It's like, what, do his clothes have magical powers? Like, like how, how does this work? So I just think, we, again, we just, need to be, we just need to be a little bit nervous about saying, oh, well, because this doesn't fit into the way I understand the world to do, it can't have happened. The Bible is full of things that are different to the things that we would have expected. The response of the religious leaders to this miracle is typical of their approach to Jesus throughout. They're so committed to their particular way of understanding the world, they're unwilling to let anyone or anything Jesus do, does challenge it. Constantly trying to fit Jesus into their worldview rather than change their worldview to make sense of the person who's right in front of them. You see, God doesn't work as we would work, or even as we would expect him to work. And so if there is a warning from these religious leaders, it's surely to be a little more open-minded when it comes to seeing how God might work in our world and our lives. So, we've done the pool. We've done the re religious leaders. Let's, let's get to the invalids, the, this man. This man who is so overlooked by the religious leaders, but who has his life turned around by meeting Jesus. He goes from an invalid to a man who can walk, who is able to stand up and carry his mat. And again, we're actually back in the territory we were at last week, so I'm not going to spend ages on this. Because what's really striking is central to this miracle is the man's response to Jesus' words. It's what Paul was talking about last week. And we see it spelled out for us in verse 11. I love this response. He's challenged by the religious leaders. Why are you carrying your mat when it's a, a Sunday? And I love his response. He says, well, Jesus told me to get up and carry my mat. And so I got up and carried my mat. Like, that's his explanation. Like, why are you doing this? Oh, because Jesus told me to. And like, that I couldn't not. Like, that's Jesus' words. He told me to get up, so I got up. He told me to carry my mat, so I carried my mat. Like, that's, that's how this works. 
The miracle is straightforward in his mind. Jesus told him to do something, and so he did it. That is the response Jesus is always looking for. He speaks, and he then calls on people to listen to what he said and to obey what he said. That's the call of the Christian life. The call to this invalid, which resulted in him suddenly miraculously being able to walk again, is the same as Jesus' call on your life. Listen to what I'm calling you to do, and then do that thing. Hear Jesus' words, live them out. Like the royal official last week, this invalid simply has to take Jesus' words and do what he tells him to. So the application for for you and me is exactly the same. It's what what Paul was going on about last week. Are you going to listen to what Jesus says, and are you then going to live it? Are you going to live it even when you think what he says sounds impossible? Are you going to live it even when it sounds too good to be true? Are you going to live it even when you might catch flack for it, like this guy does? So that's the invalid. We've done three of the four. I want to spend a a little bit longer on Jesus. I think that's legitimate because he is Jesus after all. Um, And all miracles point to him. So how does this help us understand what Jesus does. The first thing I want us to know is Jesus does loads of healings. Like, I, I think it must be Jesus' sort of number one miracle. And, and I think there's a variety of reasons for that. And I'm sure in part of it is because he cares about the physical health of people. He cares about people who are in physical pain, who are physically suffering. Uh, and he wants to bring relief from that, comfort in that situation. And it's for that reason that a world without pain and suffering and sickness is so central to Christianity, because Jesus cares about those things. He cares about your illnesses, your pain, your sickness. He cares about those things. I'm sure that's part of the reason why he does healing miracles. But I think it's much more than that. I think healing miracles act as such a central part of Jesus' ministry, because they act as the ultimate sign of what he the kind of heart of his ministry is. Jesus' ministry is full of physical acts that point to spiritual realities. Just, just think about what that looks like. So physical blindness that points to spiritual blindness. Physical food, feeding of the 5,000, that points to spiritual food, God's provision for people's needs spiritually. Physical resurrection, which points to spiritual resurrection, And, crucially, what we see here, and what we're going to see again and again, physical healing that points to spiritual healing that Jesus came to bring. Now, that might all just sound like mumbo-jumbo to you, and like, okay, you've just replaced the word physical with the word spiritual. I'm still no clearer on what you're actually talking about. Let me try and and spell it out. Because Jesus actually makes it it explicit in this miracle. It's, it's, It's probably the most surprising bit of this miracle. It happens right at the end. He meets the man again in verse 14. Jesus finds the man again in the temple, and rather than saying, oh, I'm so glad that you can walk again, he says, this is a surprising phrase, I see that you're well again. Good start. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Hmm, <laughs> a little bit less, <laughs> less what I would have expected as the second sentence to that. You know, it's just, it's bizarre. This is a good news story, and yet Jesus seems to have this like underpinning threat that sits underneath it. Of like, I did make you better, but 
you better stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. Like, why, why have we got this kind of downer here? I think because Jesus wants this man, and crucially, every one of us who reads this story, to understand and to be left in no doubt what it is that they really need healing from. This man had a physical problem, he couldn't walk. But that was not his biggest problem. It looked like it. If you were to look at the man, you go, what's this man's biggest problem? Well, he can't walk. But no, his biggest problem was not the fact that he couldn't walk. His biggest problem was a spiritual one. The sickness he really needed to be concerned about was his spiritual sickness. It's a, it's a bit like someone having a broken leg, and you're thinking, that's, that's their problem. But we miss the fact that actually they've got cancer and we just can't see it. Their biggest problem was actually the cancer, but we can see the broken leg. So we go to that. It's the equivalent of that. We can see the physical sickness. And so we think that's what he needs. He needs that sorted out. But actually there's something internal. There's a spiritual sickness that's much more serious, that's much more terminal. The sickness he really needed to be concerned about was his spiritual sickness. This is what Jesus means when he talks about crucial biblical word here, he, when he talks about sin. Sin is the word for the spiritual sickness that every human being has. He means the sickness we all have, which makes us rebel against the God who made us. The sickness we all have, which makes us hurt those people around us. The sickness that we all have that makes it impossible for us to know God. Separates us from him. The sickness that we all have that drives that desire we have to go our own way and to hell with the consequences. He means our malice and envy and greed and violence and all of the many kinds of evil that we have proved ourselves capable of over thousands of years. That's the sickness that we need healing from. And that sickness is far worse than not being able to walk. And it is 100% terminal. It always and inevitably leads to death. And that's why Jesus says to this man and says to us here today, if you don't deal with that sickness, something much worse will happen. Much worse than not being able to walk. It's that sickness that ultimately will lead to your spiritual death. It's that sickness which will ultimately keep you away from the God who loves you. But... The good news is, it's that sickness that Jesus ultimately came to heal. His mission, Jesus' mission was not about just wandering around the world and doing sporadic acts of healing and kindness to people, just like random tossing out healings to people. That wasn't what Jesus' ministry was about. Jesus' ministry wasn't about these sporadic acts of physical healing. His mission was about a once and for all act of spiritual healing, which would be sufficient for the whole world. If this man went away from meeting Jesus, healed, but without his sin being dealt with, Jesus would have saved him from one temporary bad situation, but left him remaining in an incredibly perilous situation, which would impact not just now, but eternity. So what does Jesus say? He says, I can see you can walk again, but you need to walk away from your sin. You need to be healed from that, or something much worse will happen to you. I'm going to wrap this up here. And I want to do it by making it as, as personal as I can. 
One of the interesting questions that you can ask yourself, maybe as you're not sleeping tonight, lying uh, awake in bed, then you can ask yourself this question and mull it over. Like, what, what, is, what is the thing that you think that would sort my life out? What's that, what's that thing that you pin your hopes on? Like, that's the thing. If I could just have that thing, that would make my life so much better. That would, that would solve my problems. Maybe like this man, it's health for you. Maybe you think, oh man, if I was just healthier, if I could just deal with this condition I've got, you know, depression or physical health or, or whatever it is, if I could just deal with that, if I could just have my health, if I wasn't in so much pain so much of the time or so tired all the time or so limited or so depressed, then my life would be so much better. Maybe that's the miracle you're hoping for. Maybe if you were to go home tonight and think, what is the miracle that would change my life? It's a miracle of improved health like it would be for this man. Maybe it's not that for you. Maybe it's something different. Maybe you look at your life and go, the thing that would sort my life out is just a bit more money. Not loads. But you look at your life and you just think, if I just had a bit more, enough to get my car fixed, enough to get on top of my debts, enough to buy the odd luxury, my life would be so much better. I'd be so much less stressed and then I'd be so much nicer to everyone around me. All my relationships would be sorted out. Everything would just be so much better if I just had a bit more money. Maybe that's the miracle you're longing for. Maybe, maybe like so many people, the thing that you look at and think, this is the thing that would sort my life is a new job, you know, a new career. What I need is a fresh start in a new job, new situation with different pressure. I just don't like my job. It makes me miserable. I just need a new job. Or, or take that a step further. I just need a fresh start somewhere. I need to move. I need to get out of Hartlepool, get to some other place, get, go start again with new people around me. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's a happy marriage. That's the thing that would sort your life out. Maybe you look at your marriage and you think it's not been great for some time. You look at it and you think, we argue more than we don't. We never feel close. We're not sure what the point of it is. And you just think, if I could just fix my marriage, then my life would be so much better. At least I'd be going through what I'm going through with someone else. And then I could navigate anything if I just didn't feel so alone in it. Or maybe, maybe it's not marriage. Maybe it's just other restored relationships. Maybe you feel lonely and like any close relationship would be nice. Maybe your relationship with your parents or your children or friends or colleagues, they just plague your life. They keep you awake at night. Like, what is it? What is that thing that you just think, if that was sorted out, then that would make my life so much better. Now, I don't know what it is for you, but there'll probably be something that you're pinning your hopes on. That if you were going to pray for a miracle in your life, that would be the thing you'd pray for. Maybe you do. Maybe you regularly pray that prayer, praying for that to happen. Here's what I want to tell you. The miracle you think you need is normally not the miracle you actually need. The miracle this man needed was not the miracle he thought he needed. He thought he needed the miracle to be able to walk again. But the miracle he really needed, Jesus said, was to be forgiven. The same is true for you. The miracle you need is the miracle where God forgives you for your rebellion, forgives you for the pain you've caused God, yourself, other people, and which then sets about healing that sin until one day it's completely eradicated. The miracle you need is not physical healing, it's spiritual healing. You might, you might get the miracle you want. You might get healed from your pain. If that's something you, you long for, I encourage you, pray for it. I, I hope that God does that for you. 
your money issues might be dealt with. Might even be dealt with miraculously. Your relationship problems may be solved. Your marriage may be healed. Your relationship with your family may get better. I hope all these things happen. But here's what you need to understand. Even if those issues are dealt with, even if they're miraculously dealt with, you will still wake up every morning in a broken world with more pain, more suffering, more disappointments waiting for you. This man could walk, but that does not guarantee this man the life that he always wanted. He still had to deal with judgmental religious leaders straight away. He'd still have to deal with pain and sickness. He'd still have to deal with need and with disappointments. He'd still have to deal with death. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying this miracle was meaningless. I'm sure it made his life so much better. I'm sure it was a tremendous blessing to him, as many of the miracles that we've talked about wanting may be for you. I'm not saying it wouldn't improve your life. I'm not saying it didn't improve his life. I'm just saying that even if it did, it was never going to be enough. So don't pin your hopes on a miracle which can never be enough. Rather, pin your hopes on the miracle which this miracle and all other miracles point to. The miracle which says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. The miracle that says, once you were slaves to sin, but now you are children of God. The miracle that says, you are forgiven and you are free and one day you will come to be with me in the world I've prepared for you.